You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. For the past several months, I've been working on a new podcast all about theater history called Closing Night. Now, it chronicles the up-and-down journey of shows that close too soon on Broadway. And friend of the pod, Dan Delgado, is co-producing this podcast with me. So as I launched this new show, I wanted to share with you the very first episode about the tumultuous history of the Marquee Theater, and hope that you will join us in this first season as we talk about famous and forgotten Broadway shows that played at the Marquee Theater here in New York City, and their bumpy road to closing night. Throughout March of 1982, in often cold and wet conditions, thousands of actors and demonstrators gathered at a portable stage in midtown Manhattan in the heart of the theater district. Let me hear you say shame as loud as you can. Let them hear it all over the goddamn world. Shame! 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 Let them hear the city hall. For weeks, they shouted and sang and pleaded in front of an empty Morosco Theater to protest its impending demolition, along with other historic venues, which were to be replaced by a huge hotel and theater complex. One of the biggest voices in this protest was the public theater's founder and producer, Joseph Papp. First, let me say, we didn't come here today to preside over the demolition of this theater. We're here to stop the demolition. New York is not just made up of buildings and hotels. It's made up of people. And the theaters are made up of people who occupy those theaters, which means the audience and actors. By striking this blow, they're striking a blow against the spirit of this city. We cannot replace these theaters anymore. But for years, theater buildings had been replaced. In fact, during the 20th century, a total of 72 Broadway theaters were demolished to make way for office buildings, apartments, parking garages, and hotels. But people like Joe Rosenberg wanted to stop this vicious cycle and actually preserve these beautiful and historical venues. Theaters were torn down all the time. I mean, all the theaters in Soho. That was a theater district one time, 14th Street. They all disappeared. Theaters were just expendable until you just have a few more. And then when we lost five at one time, we had 35 operating theaters left. Then it became a reality. If we lose five theaters seven more times, we have no theaters left. Rosenberg co-founded the NYC Historic Districts Council and sits on the board of directors for the League of Historic American Theaters, He also took part in the original efforts to save Radio City Music Hall from being torn down. And now he and others were trying to do the same with five theater buildings in Times Square. But there's a symbolic act here that everybody, not just people standing here, we have a few stars, a few actors, and some people passing by. This is the spirit of the city that's under attack. And we must keep this city alive. Keep these fears alive. Along the way, some of the biggest names of the stage and screen offered their support, like Tony Randall, Liza Minnelli, Robert Redford, Susan Sarandon, and Christopher Reeve. Well, finally, there's one time I wish I were Superman. I would just, I would stand there and just catch the wrecking ball and tear it apart. 
But what was so special about these particular theaters in 1982? Why the outrage and the groundswell of public and artistic support at this time? Well, because several beloved Broadway theaters had to be raised in order for this hotel and theater to go up. Mark Robinson, a theater historian and writer. It brought down five theaters, including the, the original Helen Hayes Theater, the Morosco, um, the Bijou, the Astor, and the Gaiety. And in this introductory episode, we'll learn about the significance of these five theaters that were demolished, as well as the controversial new hotel theater complex that took their place in what critics have dubbed the Great Theater Massacre of 1982. Welcome to Closing Night, a new theater podcast about famous and forgotten Broadway shows that close too soon. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll be your guide in this first season as we focus on the tumultuous and contentious beginning of one of Broadway's youngest venues, and its continued struggle as show after show has come and gone from here, leading many to call this the curse of the Marquee Theater. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Broadway Theater District as we know it today really started back in the early 1900s. As more and more theaters migrated uptown, mostly due to cheaper real estate. They went from Union Square to Madison Square and then finally settling in their new home in Times Square. The oldest Broadway theaters still in use today are the Hudson, Lyceum, and New Amsterdam theaters, which all opened in 1903, while the most recently constructed is the Lyric Theater, built in 1998. But as the theater district was moving and growing, there were also plenty of theater buildings coming down as well. In any given year, there might be anywhere from one to four theaters torn down. But only twice has there been a total of five theater buildings demolished in one year. The first was 1954, but all five of these former Broadway venues had already been converted into television or radio studios. One of them, however, the Vanderbilt, did try to make a go at being a legitimate Broadway theater again, but that effort only lasted about a year before being torn down to build a parking facility designed by renowned theater architect Herbert J. Krapp, a name you'll be hearing again. The second and only other time five theaters were demolished in a single year was in 1982, 
and this was to make way for the Portman Hotel, which was proposed by John Portman. As Joe Rosenberg explains, Portman was an Atlanta architect and developer who rose to prominence in the 1960s and 70s, having built or designed a number of hotels, office buildings, and retail complexes around the country. John Portman at the time was a star architect, and he wanted to do something in New York. And all of his hotels were these big atriums with elevators going up and down. And also, his hotels were not only big atriums, but they were everything on the inside of the hotel, nothing on the outside. In most cities, it didn't matter. But in New York, life is on the street, not inside the buildings. So to draw all these people and restaurants and that stuff inside the building and then leave the outside of the building with not even any stores, it was just completely anti-New York. Portman's initial development plan in 1973 included a hotel, retail stores, convention space, and a 1,600-seat theater. But that plan didn't really go anywhere until it was revived again in 1978 by New York City's Mayor Ed Koch. After a lot of back and forth, it was finally decided that the Portman Hotel complex would be located in the heart of the theater district between 45th and 46th Streets. This ambitious plan meant that the Piccadilly Hotel, several restaurants, a small assortment of retail shops and offices, as well as five theater buildings would all have to disappear to make way for this grand hotel. And these five theaters are at the heart of this story. So it's important to recognize their place in theater history. The oldest of them was the Astor Theater, which opened in 1906. It was designed by George Keister, whose work can still be seen at the Belasco on 42nd Street, as well as the famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. The Astor was architecturally ahead of its time, housing both the theater and 12 stories of offices, in a time when such mixed use was rare. In 1917, the Astor was home to Why Mary by Jesse Lynch Williams, the first drama to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize. A few years later, Lowe's Theater bought the Astor and converted it into a movie house, which it remained until 1972, when it then became a storefront. The Gaiety Theater opened next door to the Astor in 1909 and was designed by renowned architects Henry Beaumont Hertz and Hugh Talent, and it was owned by George M. Cohen. The Gaiety actually introduced two revolutionary concepts in theater design, that are still in use today. One was cantilevered balconies. <laughs> now, if you're like me and have never heard that word before, basically it means that the balcony was self-supported and no longer needed columns underneath it, which also meant audiences' views weren't blocked by these columns anymore. The second innovation was that of a sunken orchestra pit. The previous configuration had the orchestra on the same level as the seats in front of the stage, but now the orchestra was out of sight, save for the conductor or music director. Now above the Gaiety Theater rose several floors of offices, which housed many black talented composers who were not allowed in other places like the Brill Building. This became historically known as the Black Tin Pan Alley, with artists like Harry Pace, 
W.C. Handy, and Perry Bradford having music writing and publishing businesses here. Another interesting story about the Gaiety is that in 1918, it hosted what would be Broadway's longest-running show at the time, Lightning, with 1,291 performances. Its lead actor, Frank Bacon, became such a huge star, and the city threw him and the play's cast a parade when it closed in 1921. It was led by the mayor, and revelers marched down Broadway from the theater to Penn Station to send the cast off on their national tour. Now, having been on two national tours myself, we never got that type of send-off. Anyway, as the years went by, the Gaiety would also showcase vaudeville teams like Abbott and Costello, as well as burlesque performers like Gypsy Rose Lee, until finally becoming a movie house in 1943, changing its name to Victoria Theatre. The next of our five classic-era theaters was also designed by the Hertz and Talent Architect team, and it was originally called the Follies Bergere when it opened in 1911, just west of the Gaiety. Though it wasn't the first, Follies advertised itself as, quote, the only theater in America where one may dine and from the same chair witness an elaborate musical entertainment, end quote. In an effort to bring the risque entertainment of Paris to New York, Follies introduced a concept of interactive dinner theater to many audiences that had never seen this before, where actors and performers would venture off the stage and into the crowd. One such performer, 18-year-old Brooklynite Mary Jane West, was lauded by the New York Times for her performance. She would later go on to Hollywood and become better known as Mae West. The Follies, however, didn't find much success, lasting only six months before transforming into the Fulton Theater, where for the next 40 years it housed such original productions as The Jazz Singer, a 1925 play that would eventually be turned into the first talkie film, Arsenic and Old Lays, starring Boris Karloff in 1941, and the play Gigi, which marked Audrey Hepburn's stage debut in 1951. Four years later, the Fulton was renamed the Helen Hayes Theater in honor of the renowned actress, and opened with Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night, which went on to win the Tony Award for Best Play as well as the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. The last of our five theaters opened just a few weeks apart in 1917, the Bijou and the Morosco. Both were designed by an architect you might remember, Herbert J. Krapp. He had actually once been on staff at Hertz and Talent, but eventually became the in-house architect for the Schubert organization. Today, he has more Broadway houses to his name than any other architect, 15 in total, including the Ambassador, Barrymore, and Imperial Theaters. Hmm. So I guess it could be said that more than a third of all Broadway houses are crap. <laughs> I make no promises that that will be the last dad joke you'll hear on this podcast. Anyway, the Bijou Theater was smaller than the Morosco with only 600 seats and a narrow stage. It had trouble finding audiences and never really achieved much success, although it did have the premiere of A Moon for the Misbegotten by Eugene O'Neill. 
1951, though, the theater became a studio for CBS, and then later an art film house before going back to stage productions again in 1970. It did have one long run with the experimental mime troupe Mummenschance, which lasted three years. However, most of its Broadway productions closed within a month of their opening. By contrast, the Morosco was the larger of the two at around 955 seats and was far more successful as well, being the birthplace of many iconic pieces of American theater, including Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Death of a Salesman, Blythe Spirit, Our Town, The Norman Conquests, and Side by Side by Sondheim. Also, in keeping with the trend of plays by Eugene O'Neill, the Morosco featured the original production of his first Pulitzer Prize drama, Beyond the Horizon. In fact, the Morosco has housed more Pulitzer Prize-winning dramas than any other theater on Broadway, including the play No Place to Be Somebody, written by Charles Gordon, the first African-American to win the prize in 1970. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The importance of these houses has to do with plays. They're going to reconstruct in their plans another musical house. Well, musicals are fine. We love them. We have a couple on Broadway ourselves. But there has to be reading with serious writing on Broadway, which means houses of the size that the what that are being offered to be torn down. We need more of these houses, not less. The Astor, Gaiety, Helen Hayes, Bijou, and Morosco theaters each made their mark on Broadway. And Joe Papp knew that. He also knew that losing them, especially the Morosco and Helen Hayes, would mean losing important venues for smaller Broadway productions. The New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission had internally described the Helen Hayes as, quote, one of the finest theaters in the Times Square area, and unquestionably deserving of a place on the National Register of Historic Places in 1978. The Morosco was also deemed eligible for this listing in 1981. But unfortunately, all efforts to register either of these two theaters were ultimately denied. And so plans for Portman's Hotel continued to move forward. A Daily News editorial identified his project as the Great Hope and laid out quite a grandiose argument in support of it. This soaring glass and chrome dazzler could become one of the city's great tourist attractions, drawing an army of visitors, inspiring other investors and developers, driving up property values, and driving out the sin merchants. 
This attitude was echoed by the Urban Development Action Grant Program, which was established in 1977 to provide public funds in an effort to revitalize distressed cities across the country. Their philosophy was to bulldoze slums and build new buildings in the empty space. And they had their eye on Times Square. To them, Times Square was a slum. They always wanted to tear down that block. It was just ingrained in their mind. Rosenberg is correct that in the 1970s, Times Square was not the safest place for tourists or residents. You see, it was a dark time for New York City as it reached record levels of crime in 1976, only to be surpassed four years later. And the subways were especially susceptible to muggings, vandalism, and assault. In fact, New York subways had higher crime rates than any other mass transit system in the world at that time. So government officials were happy to support any effort to breathe new life into Midtown Manhattan. And the city supported it, the state supported it, the Empire State Development supported it, because the U.S. government was going to pay for it. Portman's project also found support from theater owners and producers like Gerald Schoenfeld, chairman of the Schubert Organization, along with the Musicians' Union and the Stage Employees' Union. They believed this hotel theater complex would help the theater district, promote further development, and infuse much-needed money into the industry. James M. Niederlander, chairman of the Niederlander Organization, was another producer who supported a new, larger theater. The name of the game is seats. If you can't play in a lot of these small theaters, because they don't have the capacity to gross enough to pay them. So I decided a long time ago that we needed larger theaters. First one was the Marquee. You know how I got that? I called John Portman. He says, well, what do you want to do? I said, I'd like to take the theater, and that's what happened. With city officials, theater producers, and others firmly behind Portman's hotel, it became quite clear that none of them were interested in saving these historic theater buildings. But having been a part of the successful campaign to save Radio City Music Hall in 1978, Rosenberg had an idea. I went to Actors Equity. I said, look, we're going to lose five theaters. Three of them are theaters. One is a movie theater and one is a store that still has the theater architecture. We're going to lose them. So can we start a group to try to save them? And Equity started Save the Theaters Incorporated. And then Equity funded it. And so we started contacting as many people as possible who were household names, and Joe Papp was one of them. And he really, he got involved a million percent. There are ways to build around these theaters. There's no need to build an ugly jutting mall that goes out onto Broadway. This whole proposition was ill-conceived from the very beginning, irresponsibly, and I'm accusing not only the city of New York, but the people on Broadway, certain producers, certain real estate holders, who felt it to their advantage to have this ugly demolition take place and to eliminate two major dramatic houses. Joe Papp was one of the few theater producers who opposed the Portman Project. 
He was on the side of the Actors' Equity Association, along with the Screen Actors Guild, the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and the Wardrobe Union. Big-name stars also joined the efforts, like Christopher Reeve, Colleen Dewhurst, Estelle Parsons, and Jason Robards. However, there was one actress who remained in support of the new hotel. She was one of the most unlikely supporters of demolishing these theaters, and she happened to be a personal friend of Rosenberg. When they were going to demolish the Helen Hayes Theater, I went to her, and I was so sure she would join us and help us. And she wouldn't do it. She was very nice about it. She wouldn't do it. Later on, I found out that they had already promised her that they would change the Little Theater into the Helen Hayes Theater. So as far as her having a theater named after her, she was going to still have it. And she didn't really care which theater was named after her. But Rosenberg wasn't the only one Hayes spoke with. In a letter to John Portman, who had also been courting her approval, she wrote, I must confess I'm not on the side of saving old buildings in New York. I don't like to confess this because I hate to hurt people who have a different idea about me. But I hope the preservationists give up soon and let you get on with the building. But they didn't give up. For two years, the Save the Theaters campaign held meetings, sent letters, filed lawsuits, proposed alternatives, and made phone calls to various members of city, state, and federal agencies. They exhausted every legal maneuver and lobbying tactic, even going as high as the Supreme Court. For months now, it has been only the court injunctions that have stopped the demolition. We may be near the end of what help we can get from the courts. Without the courts on our side, the only one who can ensure the rescue of these theaters is the mayor, and we're not going to leave here until he agrees to save the theaters. To say tensions were high in the theater community would be an understatement. In January 1982, the New York Times reported that one night before a performance of Nicholas Nickleby, the playwright David Mamet approached Gerald Schoenfeld. You call yourself a producer, Mamet said, but you don't know how to create anything. All you know how to do is destroy. Schoenfeld quickly snapped back that Mamet didn't know how to write plays, and the two men stormed off in opposite directions. This had become a fight to the finish. By the time the street protests were in full swing in March of 1982, three of the five theater buildings had already been torn down. Only the Morosco and the Helen Hayes still remained. Demonstrators filled 45th Street hoping the few remaining court injunctions and public pressure would stop further demolitions, with specific hopes that they could convince Portman to build around and on top of these two classic-era theaters. We, who are not a bunch of disorganized left-wing radical hippie-faggot actors, we're not a theater to survive. We are mainstream and we mean it. You can have both. You can have the theater, you can have tradition, you can have jobs for actors, and you can also have a hotel. Why the hell can't we do both? Pap had actually assembled a 50-man honor guard to be on duty around the clock to prevent the wreckers from doing their work in the dead of night. 
On March 4th, protesters celebrated the 65th birthday of the Morosco Theater by setting up a makeshift stage in front of the theater as the focal point of the demonstrations, where various theater artists and actors like Colleen Dewhurst and Christopher Reeve would get up to speak. I guess I could only speak to you personally about what the theater means. I can tell you that I know that the heart of New York City is the theater. I can tell you that to tear out these two things is to tear a part of the heart out of this city. In 1920, there were nearly 100 plays running on Broadway. Some good, some not so good, but there was an incredible wealth and a lot to choose from, and the theater was in its heyday. And right here at the Morosco on February 3rd, Eugene O'Neill's first full-length play, Beyond the Horizon, was performed at a matinee by actors who were appearing in other shows in those days giving 12 performances a week. And I just want to read a very short selection from his play Beyond the Horizon. In fact, many actors read scenes from the Pulitzer Prize winning plays that had been produced at the Morosco and Helen Hayes theaters. Yet it was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Sidney H. Schoenberg, from the New York Times, who took issue with all these famous actors and their efforts to stop progress. Just when our only hope of pushing New York City out of the crime and street anarchy 20th century into what has to be a brighter spinach salad 21st, up pops some soft-headed celebrities who oppose boondoggles and would rather lay down in front of bulldozers than get on with this sweetheart deal. Theater owner Gerald Schomburg also didn't think much of these actors who were speaking out and resorted to the strongest threat at his disposal to stop these demonstrations. He was so much against what we were doing, so much against it. He did everything to stop us. He even went as far as telling actors that if you demonstrate with these guys, you're not going to appear in any Schubert home theater. Okay, so a lot of the people who were demonstrating, they were taking their career in their hands, whether they knew it or not. But through it all and until the bitter end, these actors and preservationists remained undeterred and vigilant, speaking out against those who wanted to demolish theater history with passion and reason. Now, ordinarily... We would have no objection whatsoever to having hotels built in this city. We want construction in this city. But look at the price they expect us to pay for the construction of this monolithic monster by Mr. Portland. They're going to eliminate two of the most important legitimate houses, two dramatic houses in the city of New York, theaters that have held some of the finest plays New York has seen. But on March 22nd, 1982, after 26 months of legal and public efforts to stop the demolition of these historic theaters, their fight had come to an end. The mood of it was true anger, but it was more anger from the inside, not anger that you thought it would change anything. It was hatred towards the officials who were allowing it to happen. And keep in mind, people were arrested during the demonstrations because they were stopping the bulldozers. But it was resignation, because by that point, he was saying that it wasn't doing any good because the theaters were being demolished. Among those arrested were Joe Papp, Colleen Dewhurst, Celeste Holm, Richard Gere, 
Susan Sarandon, Michael Moriarty, Tammy Grimes, and many more. Now, while Christopher Reeve was active in the rally, he was actually unable to participate in this trespass that led to these arrests because of his Superman contract with Warner Brothers. It was shortly after 10 a.m. that the demolition of the Morosco and Helen Hayes theaters began. Performers continued to sing and speak at the portable stage through the afternoon, while demolition crews did their work behind police barriers across the street. Though the demolition did happen fairly quickly, some historically and architecturally significant items from the Helen Hayes and Morosco were preserved. And from the rubble of these two historic theaters and the anger over their demise, one silver lining did emerge. When this was happening, I never thought I would ever dare say anything like this. Looking back, there were aspects of the Marion Marquis that helped Times Square and helped save the remaining theaters. First of all, the resentment that you're talking about and the anger that you're talking about, there were a lot of people with the city, including the Landmarks Preservation Commission, that wanted to get back into the good side of the people who were angry at them. And they remained angry for years. Save the Theaters was now an incorporated organization. And on the three-year anniversary of the Morosco's demise, they held a commemorative event in the heart of Times Square. This included the likes of Celeste Holm, Rosemary Harris, Mark Hamill, and others, continuing to voice their support of preserving the remaining Broadway theaters. Theater owners like Gerald Schoenfeld, though, were still against what he called willy-nilly landmarking. But Joe Papp and Save the Theaters continued their fight. And eventually... It was a landmarks commission who came to us and said, okay, we didn't save these theaters. We regret it. In some ways, we were forced into doing this. What can we do to redeem ourselves? And we said, you can let us designate the remaining theaters as landmarks so that this can't happen again. And they said, fine. Throughout the 1980s, Rosenberg and Save the Theaters would help other Broadway theaters receive landmark designations so that they would never have to face the wrecking ball, much to the disappointment of the theater owners, who actually sued the Landmark Preservation Commission to stop these efforts. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, but the landmark designations were upheld. Meanwhile, construction continued on the Portman Hotel, which eventually changed its name to the New York Marriott Marquis Hotel. And James M. Niederlander got his wish, as the Niederlander organization beat out nine other bidders to take over operation of the Marquis Theater. As they say, hindsight is 2020, and theater historian Mark Robinson shares his own take of this demolition battle and its aftermath. I think at that time in New York, they couldn't fill the theaters that were there. I mean, we're also talking about a time where not long after this, the Mark Hellinger became a church, you know? I mean, theater spaces were just not fillable. Some of the theaters that were torn down were not in the best shape to begin with, and it was going to cost a lot of money to fix them. And there just wasn't the economy for that in the 80s or the ticket-buying public to support having every one of these theaters occupied. Do I like that they had to do it? No. I mean, I think it's sad when we have to lose these great old spaces, but I can't argue the fact that it made more sense to get rid of some of those theaters to be able to uh, 
create a space that was a little bigger that could accommodate musical theater, which is where the money was, especially in the 80s. The Marriott Marquis Hotel began taking guests in September 1985. However, controversies and setbacks continued to follow this building, not to mention the anger of a theater community still holding a grudge for those theaters that were torn down. The Marquis Theater held its first official performance in July of 1986. Sure, the heating didn't work, the toilets backed up, and there weren't any dressing rooms, but the Marquis forged ahead, and a month later opened with a hit musical transfer from London called Me and My Girl. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Join me for the next episode as we talk more about this gem of a show that gave the marquee its longest-running and most successful musical to date. But then there's also the boycotts and construction blunders, the union strikes and maintenance mishaps that plagued this show and the marquee theater itself. Throughout this first season of Closing Night, we'll be taking a look at some of the famous and forgotten Broadway shows that have come and gone from this troubled theater examining what went wrong and why they closed. Is there a curse on the marquee? I mean, I, I can't say that I necessarily believe in curses, but I do think that it sure has had its string of bad luck and it makes you, you know, maybe second guess the idea of curses. They're like, well, guess there could be. Closing Night is a production of Win Me Media and with yours truly as host and executive producer. Dan Delgado is editor and producer not only for this podcast, but also for his own movie podcast called The Industry, which I highly recommend. Much appreciation goes to Joe Rosenberg and Mark Robinson for their insights, Tim Dolan for his support, Robert Arman, who captured those street protests back in 1982, as well as the voice talents of our own Dan Delgado and Kate McClanahan from Actors Sound Advice. Their website is voiceoverinfo.com. For a transcript and the full list of sources used in this episode, and believe me, there are a lot of them, please check out that link in the show notes. We'll see you next time as another production makes its way to closing night. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.